You're watching A Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. When we talk about the challenges facing America's judicial branch, we often focus on the concerns and accomplishments of large metropolitan courts. After all, they are the ones that have more money and more resources to throw at a problem. However, in a survey I conducted several years ago, I was astonished to find out that almost 65% of all courts in the United States had benches of fewer than four judges. In a large portion of our country, these local suburban and often rural jurisdictions, these local courts, they are the representative of the judicial branch. How are these local courts solving their problems? How are they coping with the issues of the day, often with less staff, less money, often working in shared facilities, and frequently facing government entities which are somewhat less respectful of the courts as a separate branch of government? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we've invited clerks of court and court administrators from one and two judge courts from around the country. We're going to chat about the issues that are facing their courts, how they're managing those issues, and what advice they have for the rest of us. So let's join our panel. We're joined today by Angie Van Skoik, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado. Lindsay Vorshi, court administrator for the Tifton Judicial Circuit in South Georgia. Kelly Elliott, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Danielle Trujillo, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Littleton, Colorado. And Sandra Berry, clerk of court for the Municipal Court in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Thank you all for joining today's video podcast. Each of our panelists works in a one or two judge court. Let me start off by asking about a topic that currently consumes all of us. How are your courts coping with the coronavirus? Angie Van Skoik, your court is in the Breckenridge Municipal Building. What are visitors required to do before entering? Right now, with where the county is, uh, we're in level red, I believe. So you have to, you can only come into town hall by appointment only. So the front doors are locked. They have to wear a mask and call us, and then someone will open the door for them to be able to come into the the building. So I have uh, court next Wednesday. We also have a limit to 10 people in chambers. Uh, So 10 defendants at a time will be allowed in. The others will be waiting outside, and I'll call them as they come in. And we have hand sanitizer available. We do have masks available if they do not have their own to wear. Um, but they are required to have masks on while they are in the building. Has anyone refused to wear their mask while in court? Not yet. I have had people that came in and would take their mask off to speak with us, and I'd have to remind them to keep their masks on. They did put up like a sneeze guard to the front desk area to kind of provide some uh, protection, but there's like a six-inch gap on the bottom, so people will, you know, like duck under to try to hear them better, which kind of defeats the purpose. But with noises and such, you know, if somebody ends up printing, I can't hear the people talking because of the sneeze guard and the mask. So it gets to be a bit of a challenge uh, sometimes if there's too much stuff going on. Lindsay Vorchi, what are visitors required to do before entering your courthouses in Georgia? 
we are also requiring masks. We're taking their temperature and we are asking them a series of questions before we let them in on if they've been exposed, if they have been tested, if they're showing any symptoms. For the hearings that we are having in person, we're also staggering those times. So normally on a regular basis, we would have nine o'clock and a 1.30 and anybody that had a hearing for the morning would come in at nine and then you just wait for your case to be called and same for the afternoon. But now everybody is being given a specific time to come. So no more than just the parties in that case are in the courtroom at one time. Does everyone have to wear a mask? Yes, everybody is required to wear a mask. And for ones that show up without a mask, we do provide them with one. Have you ever had any people who've refused to wear masks? We have not had anybody refuse to wear a mask yet. We actually had arraignments this morning at our courthouse. And I did have a lady that she was waiting for her test results to come back. So we did have to send her home. But as far as wearing a mask, I have not had anybody refuse to. We know the vaccines are coming. Question is when. Optimistic estimates for most of us predict maybe April. Now, the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has issued guidance that employers can require employees to be vaccinated against the flu. So the question is, with the exception of religious or medical objections, once the vaccines become widely available, will your court make employees get vaccinated before returning to work? Danielle Trujillo? Great question, Peter. We will actually follow whatever the state or the county or the city requires. So if there's a mandate from any of those jurisdictions, then we'll follow what the rest of the city does. Are you expecting guidance to come down? I am expecting guidance to come down. Uh, Our police department has already started getting vaccinated. That has been willingly, so they haven't been required to do that, but most officers are doing that. So I expect that most of the employees will want to do it anyhow. So I'm not expecting a lot of pushback. Sandra Berry, how about your court? Um, Right now, the judge says that he doesn't plan to require people, although he probably will encourage it. But if the state mandates the Ohio Supreme Court mandates it, then we probably will. We we definitely will. Is the state Supreme Court discussing this issue? They've been sending down uh, all kinds of guidance ever since this got started back in March. Kelly Elliott, how about your court in Missouri? Right now, the vaccination is coming to our police department and our court is, our court staff are being included in that and we're really? uh, yes we are being included with that and supposed to be able and available next week I'm actually on a, on the calendar for Tuesday of next week to get the vaccination and the city as a whole is planning to put policy into place with regard to a requirement the state also is talking about a requirement for court employees you know we're in an odd position i don't know i don't know about different states but we are in an odd position because we're city employees but we're court employees so we're also governed by the supreme court so we have two places we have to answer to so we will go with whichever guidelines come down and weigh that difference and you know Like with regard to our closings, we've had to follow both the city and the states, you know, when when it's came to closing for COVID. So we'll follow the same thing when it comes to vaccination. 
Have there been situations in the past where state and local guidelines have conflicted? Yeah, we have had differences. We have differences in holidays where a state holiday will be different than city holidays. And, and so then we don't have, you know, we don't have software support because the state will be closed, but the city is open. I usually use those as training days where we use that as a day where we do training or office cleanup, something where we're not going to have software issues. So, because we'll be doing something different. And then we've, we've had differences because of being on different phases, as they've called them here in Missouri, different phases throughout COVID, where the state would have us on phase one and our city would be on phase two or, or vice versa. Can you define the different phases for me? On the Supreme Court level, phase one is where we're currently at, where in-person hearings are only for the more critical cases or um, something that would be where something we wouldn't have in the municipal court, which would be maybe adult abuse or juvenile along those lines. And where our city's phase one is, the criteria is more of, of being open and allowing the public in where the state's phase one is, is more of a limited access by appointment mm-hmm. only. How does your court reconcile the differences? We follow the state guidelines, the Supreme uh-huh. Court's order. Because, and then the Supreme Court order and then the Jackson County presiding judge, because we're in Jackson County, then pre- prepares an order and we follow that. Let me turn to a more generic topic. Angie. We often hear about differences in priorities between the court and the city. Has your court experienced any such differences? Um, that was something that it comes up every year because the finance department wants us to generate more income. And it's kind of like, well, court is not an income generating entity. <laughs> a couple of times they've tried to, to push through to have us have our court costs raised and the judge has been you know, like, no, we're not trying to you know, penalize people even further uh, with what they do. And, you know, when we did first went into lockdown back in March, one of the things that they were looking at, it's like, you know, where can you cut budget? And, you know, it's like, the only thing I have that I can cut is training because anything else is like, it, it's an essential function. So I was just like, there's really nothing that I can cut. And they're like, well, are there any things that you can in- increase and add? I was like, well, no. <laughs> It's like, I, I understand where they're coming from, but, you know, at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, I, I can't go out and make the police department write more tickets to have more citations come through to generate more income. I'm like, that's not how this works. And if you guys try to do that, we'll have the ACLU beaten down on our door and saying, mm-hmm. what are you doing? And, uh, you know, so just kind of keeping their, their expectations realistic in terms of what can and can't be done and, you know, just making sure that they understand that judicial system is not about generating revenue. You know, it's about following and upholding the, the laws that are out there. Do you think the city officials understand the court's position? I I think they're just kind of tolerating it um, because every year when it's time to go over the budget, they're always like, well, why are these numbers down from last year? Why are these numbers up and how can we continue to go up? And next year's budget should be like, you know, 10% higher. And it's like, well, that's fantastic, but that's not how this works. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. 
great if I could say that the budget for, you know, code fines would be 10% higher than the year before, but it's all based on if people are adhering to code regulations or if they're, you know, breaking the law. So there's not a lot that you can can do to influence that as, as a court employee. Uh, actually, I was going to say one fantastic thing that our city did was take on priority-based budgeting. What I felt was a huge advantage for the court was you're able to actually say how you spend your money based on programming. So you can take something like your juvenile docket and say this is how much it costs to have court clerks assigned to these cases, probation, also how much you're paying your judge, and it's included in a program. So when things like budget cuts come up, then the real question becomes what programming am I allowed to cut, right? Can I cut that's optional that the county may provide that I don't need to provide at the municipal level? Um, or what are the things that we have to keep because we have to provide that service as a required service, right? So it made my argument incredibly easy when asked what programs could we potentially cut? And the only one that we could potentially say we could cut was the domestic violence caseload. And the only reason why was because the county was better, better able to service it. So that was a huge win for my department to have everything already lined up with programming and how we're spending the money. How does your court go about cutting the domestic violence caseload? So what we did actually was immediately deflected all citations that would have normally been written into the municipal court that were domestic violence related, and we made officers at the municipal level write those into county court. Extremely large caseload, but we immediately deflected right back in March when the shutdown happened. Um, so we partnered with PD to let them know, which then meant I saved the expense of my public defender, which is a huge piece of my professional services budget, is to have a uh, pay a public defender. So we were able to cut that immediately. And then the county has now taken on that caseload instead of it being at the municipal court. Kelly, how about your court in Lee's Summit? I have to echo a lot of what Angela said. Uh, it's a yearly challenge. You, a lot of questions get asked every year, you know, and you have to give the kind of the same answers every year. You know, why are the revenues down? Why is your AR, your accounts receivable up? What are you doing to collect? You know, and then, then of course, here in Missouri, as I, you know, pretty much everybody knows here in Missouri, we had Ferguson happen. And then our municipal court system has been completely revamped. And we have now the minimum operating standards that we follow. And the minimum operating standards give us guidelines for everything from how we collect and what we can, you know, what we can and can't collect. When we can collect it, we cannot incarcerate anybody because they owe money. We cannot issue warrants just because they owe money. We, you know, we, we just have very, very strict guidelines that we have to adhere to. And trying to explain that to the city forefathers is difficult, and at, at the very least. And then, then also talking to them about just because more tickets were issued doesn't mean that we disposed of as many. And it doesn't mean that you, we disposed of as many at a higher fine or, you know, trying to explain that. Also, getting them to understand that our court costs are not a part of the fee schedule for the city. 
because court costs, a very small portion of them actually come to the city. Most of them go to different entities in the state or a portion thereof. You know, it's it's an education. I mean, I, I, I think I started out my thought on this when I first saw the question of, it's really education and communication is the key. And every year council members change, you have to re-educate on this subject. And so I feel like every year I'm standing before finance and budget and re-educating on this subject or with our finance department, I'm re-educating, you know, if we have a different auditor or re-educating on this subject. Then we also, also here in Missouri, the Supreme Court has recently um, developed a uniform fine schedule, which goes all across the state. So we are now limited. I mean, there's no fluctuation. It's the same amount charged on uh, one to five over in speeding is the same no matter what city you're in. So we, you know, our city can't change it because they want to. So getting them to understand that has been really challenging as well. Do the local officials understand the court's position? I think they tolerate is the is the better term. And they're also always trying to find ways to um, work with or push for legislation. And I like Missouri Municipal League, different leagues and, and try to change legislation. And I think the part they don't get is that uh, municipal courts are just right out there being watched in every move that we make. And so changing legislation is probably the last thing that will ever happen. Let me turn specifically to technology. Do any of your courts receive electronic traffic tickets from your local law enforcement agencies? Danielle? Yes, we do. So luckily I was in the police department prior to moving over to court. So I've had the pleasure of working in both departments and I was the technology manager there. So understanding both pieces was a huge asset when they transitioned to a new system back in May. Um, we did run into some problems because there wasn't money slotted for in, uh, integration at the time. However, we knew we were gonna be getting new court software, um, like we're going live in January. So we budgeted in the court budget to build that integration. So luckily that integration will go live with our new system. Because I understand the police data, it helps me know exactly what I need and can get from them into the court software and what we should be getting from them. So it's kind of an advantage. At the end of the day though, the challenge that we always run into is that if the data isn't complete from the, from the police side, then we're getting a lack of data in the court system, right? And so part of our new challenge, especially with virtual court, is getting all of that data up front when somebody calls to check in. So we're having to ask them a lot of those duplicate questions, like for their cell phone number, for an email address, so we can communicate back electronically to them. So that's been one of the challenges. Have you discussed the issue of incomplete citation data with law enforcement? We do, actually. We I hold the Justice Stakeholders meeting once a month, so having a partnership between the City Attorney's Office and the Police Chief and myself and the judge is a huge advantage. So we meet once a month just to talk over any concerns. 
We've had a lot of conversations about COVID right in March when we decided that we weren't going to take on the domestic violence. It generated a conversation of how does this impact PD. We actually took on a capstone project. Um, we partnered with a local university, University of Colorado, to have a grad student um, complete a capstone project for us to evaluate whether or not it's a level of service we can continue to keep. So that was part of all the justice stakeholders coming together and saying we need them to evaluate how it impacts each department and whether or not we believe that it's a city service we should provide because we have a lot of stake in you know, what's going on in our community and we want to provide that service. Can we afford to? Um, and then what's the repercussions if we keep it or if we choose to deflect it to the county? So it's a very beneficial conversation that we hold monthly on different topics and just to keep each other up to date with what's coming up, what's new, any changes in staffing, all of that stuff. So we have that monthly conversation. Sandra, how about your court? No, we don't have uh, electronic tickets. We have been in conversation with the police department and we are trying to, we've even offered to use some of our budget to pay for them making that transition, but we haven't yet done so. Kelly, how about in Leeds Summit? Yes, we have electronic, we have e-ticketing, and we have had since um, 2010. We're actually uh, actually getting ready to get a new program, but our tickets actually are channeled through from the police department to the PA electronically to a mm -hmm. portal that then comes from the PA to us. So the PA actually files the tickets electronically to the court. PA so is they, a prosecuting attorney? Prosecuting attorney, yeah. yes, okay. sorry. Yeah. Too many okay. acronyms in this world. <laughs> yeah, so they go, so the tickets go electronically to the prosecutor. The prosecutor then has the ability to review, change, amend, and then, then they are electronically sent to the court. And, and what I've found, and I've, I'll add just one thing that anytime that you have that opportunity to have e-ticketing, we found here just the huge change it made with regard to so many less errors, so much faster at getting the ticket available for payment, so much easier if there was updates and charge codes made by the state. All those things could be just be done so quickly as compared to any type of a manual type system and, and a less learning curve per se for the officers. So it's been a great, great asset here in Lee Summit. Angie, how about in Breckenridge? <laughs> we still have paper tickets. There was a detective back in 2014, I believe, that asked about having e-tickets getting devices for the PD to have so they could, you know, like print out a little receipt to give to people and you'd actually be able to pay right at your car when you got a traffic ticket. And the PD was like, nope, that's too complicated. We don't want that. And that's kind of as far as it ever made it. <laughs> I think at this point in time, um, for the, the state of Colorado, they've implemented that all the police officers have to have body cams, um, and our department did not have them yet, so that's getting rolled out this year. So I think any excess budget they may have had um, will be going to outfitting all the officers with that. So I don't see it happening anytime soon. I would love to have that, because uh, right now, one of the admins in PD, and I think even the officers can input information 
and then they'll relay the uh, paper copies over to me, but it usually takes at least two weeks for them to enter the information on their end. I'll have people calling the same day they get a ticket saying, I want to pay and I can't take payment unless I have their version in hand. With us yeah. being remote, I can't get their version in hand. Um, so I'm just telling them, it's like, you know, well, if you have your copy, you can pay online. And I just hope that they enter the correct dollar amount. And most of them usually short change. Um, but for me to accept, you know, and tell them, hey, you still owe $10. It costs us like $5 to get yeah. $10. So I, I don't even bother um, with the $10 no, amount. But, you know, if, if there was you know something a little bit better, I, I would love to have it. What automated case management system does your court use? And how long have you had it? Angie? We are currently using Journal Technologies Justware um, that was in place before I started, but they are phasing out support this year. So we're currently reviewing several other options. PD uses Tyler Technologies New World to enter information. So, you know, like the best option would be to have that same system. We share costs with the other municipal courts in Summit County. Uh, so it's kind of a system that we all have to agree on, which is making and a little bit more of a challenge um, just due to budget costs and restrictions for what uh, we can go with. So we're in the review process and hope to have that finished up within the next month uh, so we can get something in mm. place to get that up and, and going. Lindsay, how about in your circuit? Um, we use ICON case management. Um, I believe we're going on about 15 years using that system. Um, it works really well for us because our circuit covers four counties and our two judges cover four counties. Um, and so the clerks in each of the four counties have their own icon and um, we are able to, the judges, myself and the judges secretaries are able to log in from anywhere and view information from each of those four counties. Kelly, how about in Lee's Summit? In Lee's Summit, we participate in the statewide case management system, which was JIS, the Justice Information System, which is now being converted to Show Me Court, which is a product that the state Office of State Court Administrators has developed and written themselves. So we're transitioning along with the state. Our court converted to that program from ENCODE. We joined the statewide system in 2014. And it has been the best thing that we could ever have done. <laughs> I was the one that pushed that. I came from the state court system before I became a municipal court administrator. And it has, and during all these changes because of Ferguson, because we are a part of the statewide system, a lot of the challenges the municipal courts have been faced with, uh, with the many changes of collecting excess revenue and on some and having to document that that's done for us through our system where they're having a lot of them are having to do it manually. And so it it was a it's a great thing. And, and now they're pushing for all municipal courts in the state to join the statewide system so that it will be more uniform and, and unified and also to provide public access to the court because all of our cases are out on what's referred to as CaseNet and are available for attorneys, private citizens, anyone to see. My final question is for all of you. 
What is one piece of advice that you would want other clerks of court and court administrators in local courts around the country to remember as they face 2021? Angie? We can do hard things and excel no matter what's thrown at us. We can make it work. Lindsay? We've had to learn to be, or me, flexible, creative in what technology we use, where we hold where we hold court, and also have to be patient with ourselves. I think for us, we learn something new every day, and there's we're always finding out a way that we can do it better next time. And then communicating with our with your judges and your clerks and your attorneys, it's it takes a whole team to get through all of this. So communication, I say, is very important. Kelly. To look for innovative and safe ways to conduct your court dockets. I, I continually um, say this to my staff and to um, the other justice partners that we work with as the, the health and safety of our court customers and of ourselves, of our staff, should be our number one priority. And I would share that with all court administrators or court leaders to keep that in mind every day and to hold your dockets virtually as often as you possibly can so that you make sure that you're doing that. Sandra? I would actually try to make sure you try to stay calm and breathe and uh, just try to keep your staff calm because through this year, the minute someone is tested positive, it's like everybody becomes nervous and work together, learn to work together because the staff can get all worked up. And then because people are going to have to join in and do things and make things work because the person who usually does something is not here. And so learn to work as a team. Danielle? Um, I have two things. I think number one, like Sandra said, take care of your people. I think if nothing else, what we learned from this is um, we have to take care of ourselves. Um, in leadership, we tend to put everybody else first. So you have to make sure that you're healthy and taking care of yourself so that way you can help your team. But really check in on your team. There are people too that are going through their own challenges at home with family members, may have lost people. So this has been, the pandemic has really pushed us to really focus back on what matters, and it's the people that are serving our communities, right? I think secondly, the biggest thing would be shoot for the stars. We're all in a budget crisis, but we've been able to pull out more resources now than we ever have in the past and transform what we're currently doing to move everybody into a different place and make courts look completely different than they ever looked before. So push on because we can keep getting there. Um, we can provide virtual court from here on out. It doesn't just have to stop because yeah. of COVID. We can make their experience different and we can better serve our communities. And so keep doing that, keep pushing forward, ask for the money, ask for change, it will help it. I wanna thank Angie Van Skoik, Sandra Berry, Kelly Elliott, Lindsay Vorshi, and Danielle Trujillo for sharing the challenges in their local courts and how they're managing those challenges. Their advice is vital for helping all of us get through 2021. My thanks also to you court professionals out there watching this episode. In the face of crisis and in the face of hope, you keep the courts running. 
Thank you. Join us in February for another episode of The Challenges Facing America's Courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for watching. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thanks for watching. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. Thank you.